We are today, this morning, beginning a new series that will take us right up until Christmas. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. One will be brought to you. You can take it home. You can start reading First John. Um, actually, let me encourage you, if you have a hard time like knowing what to read in the Bible, we, in the last year we went through the year of biblical literacy, so you read the whole Bible. Um, but if you're like, how, like, I don't know how to engage the Bible on a day-to-day sort of thing, um, let's together just read First John, like one chapter, there's five chapters, one chapter a day, Monday through Friday, the weekend's off, You right? I mean, that's from First John, you read the Bible, whatever, you know, but First John, one chapter a day, let's, let's do that for the remainder of our series, get this letter really into us um, as we're studying it. But, um, so we start a series today in the letter of First John called Becoming Like Jesus. And the reason why we're calling it that is because at a few different points in John's letter, he says that followers of Jesus, Christians, are to be like Jesus in this world. That Christians are to be like Jesus in this world. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, you are to be like Jesus, period. John is very, very black and white. He does not mince words. He's like, this is the way it is. For example, 1 John 2, 3 through 6. We know that we have come to know Jesus if we keep his commands. Anyone, whoever says, oh, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. This is, this is how John talks. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in Jesus. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That was my very first memory verse, by the way, as a Christian. Whoever claims to live in him must, uh, the old NIV says, walk as Jesus did or live as Jesus did. So John makes, there it is, very clear. If you, li- if you claim to be a Christian, you must live as Jesus did. First John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Verse 17. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There it is. How how is love made complete in us? In this world, we are like Jesus. So it is our hope through this study that we see what John means by being like Jesus or living like Jesus in this world, and that we would ourselves become more like Christ. So if you have a Bible, please open up to 1 John chapter 1. Um, And I'll read our text this morning, which comes from the opening paragraph of this letter. And then I'll pray. 1 John verses 1 through 3. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you that the eternal life, which was with the Father and has has appeared to us, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, um... To be completely honest, this morning it feels like uh, I'm that uh, little girl who was in with the crowd and you were asking to feed everyone and got scraps and this girl had lunch. 
like a little lunch, and you took it and you fed 5,000 people. Um, I feel like I have just like this little lunch today. Like, it's not enough to feed everyone. And I just pray you would feed everyone. I pray you would feed me and us, all of us together. I pray that we would see and experience you, Christ, and how, what you are like in this world and how we can become like you, God. And so, um, and so I pray, Jesus, that you would teach us, that you would lead us, that you would speak to us, God, and um, I just offer what I have to you. And I ask that you would, you, it would be enough, Lord. You would be enough. You satisfy completely. You fulfill completely. I pray that we would get uh, glimpses of that today. Um, so I pray that you would illuminate the word of God um, to us, that we would see with the eyes of our heart, they would be enlightened, they would come to know you and live in light of what we know. Give us the power by the spirit of the living God to live in light of what we know. Get this into our lives, into our bodies. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, 1 John is technically um, considered a letter uh, written to the church around Asia Minor or Ephesus. But it doesn't, doesn't begin like a typical letter does. It doesn't say who's writing it. John's never even mentioned in this. It's accredited to John. But it doesn't begin by saying, I'm John, I'm writing to you. It doesn't even say to whom it was written. It just jumps in like a very strange email, like just starts off with like no subject line at all. And you're like, this is going to be creepy. And then, and, and then it just goes into it. No, hello, how are you? It's like an email from a crazy person. And I get a lot of emails from crazy people. And like they, they don't even say, hello, Pastor Dave, or hello, Dave, just the end is coming or whatever. And, um, and then I delete. I'm like, no, crazy person, I will not read your email. Um, but John isn't just some crazy person. Uh, I don't know why he started this way. Maybe he was just sitting there looking at his pen and paper, not knowing how to start this profound letter. But it starts really strange. This, but this isn't just really a letter. It's actually a sermon. He is writing. This is not simply a letter. This is a poetic sermon. And it's so hard to begin a sermon. It's harder than you think to start a sermon. I wrestle with this every single week. I almost started my sermon by saying it's hard to start a sermon, but that would have been a horrible way to start a sermon. <laughs> I sit there sometimes for, for minutes and hours, literally hours, we'll look at my computer like, how do I start this sermon? Like, I know where I want to take it. I know where I want the sermon to end. I just don't know how to start it. Do I start it by saying, hi, everyone? Do I start it by saying, dear people? That doesn't seem right. Do I start like, I'm a pastor, I have something to say. Like, how do you start this sermon? And I think John kills it at starting this sermon. This intro, because he keeps you reading. He keeps you listening. He starts by saying, this is how it starts. That which was from the beginning. That's how he starts it. And you're like, you start reading this, you're like, what was from the beginning? What are you talking about? And then the next line, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have touched with our hands. And it makes you think, wait, you've heard and seen and touched something that was from the beginning? What are you talking about? And John calls what he saw and heard and touched the word of life. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have touched concerning the word of life. And he says that life appeared. He says this life appeared and we have seen it. And we testify that this life was eternal life. So we've seen life 
And we've touched this life, and we've heard this life, and we tell you that this life is not just any life. This life is eternal life. And it's becoming obvious that he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about a person, and that person is Jesus. uh, uh, John is talking about knowing Jesus. He's saying, I have come to know Jesus. I, he says, have come to have fellowship with Jesus. And what makes um, this here such a beautiful introduction to this letter is that if you haven't figured it out by now, what he's saying in a very poetic way is that I've spent time with Jesus. He's saying, I have spent time with Jesus. And I have walked with Jesus. And I have followed Jesus. And I saw him. And I touched him. I leaned back on his chest and like heard his heart. I've heard him. I know the tone and the tenor and the cadence of his voice. I know his literal voice. And as a result of knowing Jesus and following Jesus and listening to Jesus and smelling Jesus and letting Jesus feed me, sometimes with his own hands, I will tell you that this Jesus has changed me forever. And that this isn't just any life, because you can bump into people that because of their life, your life is changed. That happens all the time. But this isn't just any life. This is eternal life. John is saying, I've met not just life, I've met eternal life. That this life, Jesus, is actually eternal life. And by eternal life, I know that a lot of people think eternal life means heaven. This is not what John's talking about. It's not, he's not talking about the place you go when you die. He's not saying, uh, I've come to know this guy, and through this guy, I have a place to go where I, when I die. That is not what he's saying. It's not not what he's saying, but it's not particularly or specifically what he's saying. He's saying eternal life is actually real life. I have come to know through Jesus what real life is, true life. Through his life, I've found life, real life, life as in you know why you were alive in the first place kind of life. Life like that gave meaning and fulfillment and salvation to your entire life. This is what is called everlasting life, everlasting life or eternal life. This is what uh, C.S. Lewis meant when he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That's what he's talking about. He says, not only did I see Jesus, but by seeing Jesus, I can now see. Not only have I heard Jesus, but because I've heard Jesus, I can now hear. Because I've touched Jesus, I can now feel. Like I've come to know this this person, and through his life, I have eternal life. My eyes have been opened. My ears have been opened. I can truly feel now. Now, we get quick hits of this, though, in life. We get quick hits of this in in things like romance. We fall in love with someone, and it might even be a quick thing, and we get a hit of this, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm alive. But it doesn't ever seem to last. We get hits of this through experiencing, like experiences like travel. And we travel and we see these new experiences and we are like, I feel alive. But somewhere along the line, we long for going home. 
We get this feeling sometimes in a new job. We get this job like, I feel alive. But then the job, the new job, just becomes work eventually. Just work. It's like I got a new job and now it's what I do. And what I'm saying is that we might get pieces of life and they feel like we're really alive. But they don't really last. And this is why knowing Jesus is called everlasting life. It doesn't go away. It's everlasting. It's like knowing life itself. It's like that thing that you get, those little hits of life, but it's everlasting life. And there's a point in Jesus' ministry where he actually says this very thing to a bunch of people who are asking him to, to, asking Jesus to feed them. They were following Jesus, and then Jesus fed them bread. He like multiplied fish and loaves, and he fed them. And there's something about when Jesus takes someone's scraps and he, and he makes a meal out of them that it tastes incredible. And people are like, wow, this guy is a really good baker or whatever. And um, we didn't even see him use an oven, but his bread is on point. So um, we just saw him going into, on a boat and he went to the other side of the galley. Let's follow him because I guarantee you he has more bread. I just know he has more bread. Right? He has all that, his band of people, and they have, there's got to be more bread. So this whole group of people follow Jesus to the other side of the lake, and when he gets off the boat, they're like, hey, um, what's up? So uh, can we get some more of that bread? Literally, they're asking him for more bread. And so this is, by the way, this is in John 6. I'm not making this up. It's actually in the Bible. You can find it for yourself. They don't say what's up, but you can get the gist. This is what's happening. So they're asking for more bread. And so this is what Jesus says to them in verse 26. He said, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me. Not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You, you, you tasted some of my bread. You liked my bread. Do not work for food that spoils. Okay, this is the thing about Jesus. When you spend time with Jesus, a thing isn't just a thing. It's a big thing. So bread isn't just bread. He'll use that to talk about true bread. So when you go to Jesus, you're like, I'm hungry. He's like, you know where your hunger is really coming from? You're like, whoa, it's a little too intense. Literally just want some bread. <laughs> but Jesus here, like, but he's, he's using this as a teaching moment. He goes, do you know why you're following me? Because you like my bread. And I, I'm not going to lie, it was some good bread. But don't work for food that spoils. But for food that endures to inter- eternal life. There it is, eternal life. This is the thing that John's saying that he found in Jesus. Eternal life. He's like, hey, work for the food that, that actually leads to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Son of Man is the way, the way he talks about himself. Now, Jesus is quoting from a very popular verse here in Isaiah chapter 55. In Isaiah chapter 55, the Lord uh, speaks through Isaiah, the prophet. And, he's, and the Lord says this through Isaiah. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money... Come, buy, and eat. You're like, I don't have any money. How am I going to buy? Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Which is very curious because you're asking yourself, then what do I buy it with? You buy it with going to him. You purchase it with the, the, the transaction of your life showing up to God and saying, I need Food that you supply that will never run out. It's, your, it's you showing up to God saying, this is, this is my sacrifice. This is, this is, my, this is the, the cost is me. 
Go, go, come to, come, Jesus, God says, come to me. Without money, don't show up with money. Don't, don't show up with, show up with yourself and buy from me milk and wine and food. Why spend money on what is not real bread? Oh, it says bread, but he's saying bread. He, uh, way, the way he's saying bread is bread, right? Like, why spend money on what is not bread? Like bread. Like, not, not bread, but bread. Why spend money on something that's not like that thing that you're really hungry for? And labor on what does not satisfy. There it is. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. Why, why are you laboring what doesn't satisfy you? Why are you spending money and your time and your energy on what isn't true bread? Last week, Ash and I were in the Outer Sunset and stopped at this, uh, the rest of that restaurant, Outerlands, if you've ever been there. And we just ordered a glass of wine and their bread. I don't know if you know about this bread, but there is not a category for this bread. It was, I don't have words to describe. I just have like groanings, inner groanings about like what, like, so we, we get there and we had, we had an appointment out there. So we was like stop for bread and wine, communion pretty much. And, um, <laughs> and it came out bread, wine, and Ashton and I looked at each other like communion. Like how cool is it that you can celebrate Jesus with bread and wine? I'm sorry. The best religion, the best faith. I'm sorry, it just is. <laughs> like that is celebrating. So we did. We were like, bread, wine, Jesus. And so we were there giving thanks to God. It was so good. And I took my first bite of this bread, and it was crispy on the outside, doughy in the middle. And it, I was like, Lord, always give me this bread. <laughs> like always, always, all the time, this bread, every day, always. I want this bread. But here's the deal. That's not everlasting bread, right? That's obvious. This is not, I'm not telling you anything profound here. This, this is not a profound statement. That bread is amazing, but it doesn't ultimately satisfy. I might not be able to drive 30 minutes from Petrail Hill to drive there to buy it every day. I might not be able to spend, afford to buy an $8 loaf of bread. Like I might not ever, that's not profound, right? But why do we keep spending our energies on that which isn't truly bread? You know what I'm saying? Like we have things in life that are like that. We're like, oh my gosh, this, yes, always. I always want this. But then it, it's not there. Or you can't get it. Or it doesn't do the same thing as it did before. By the way, I went back and bought another loaf and it did the same thing the second time I had it. But that's a whole different thing. I, I'll tell you, I'll report back in if it keeps doing that thing, okay? But look what Jesus says in verse 33. For the bread of God, this is what he's talking about. Why are you looking for things that aren't like really bread? For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The true bread is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. I know exactly how that feels, right? <laughs> Sir, I want, we want this bread always. Now, they... Um, they had this Old Testament connection of God uh, feeding the people of God, the children of Israel, in the wilderness. And it was manna from heaven. And it, it was a steady supply every day except on, on Sabbath, except on Saturdays. There was no bread on Saturday. You had to collect double on Fridays and then not collect on Saturday. And so they were thinking that Jesus is saying to them, I am like, like manna from heaven. I am getting my bread recipe from God. Like it's from heaven. And I, I'm feeding you from heaven. And they're following him around going, this guy has a new recipe from heaven. 
Like it's good bread. And it's like, it's like the manna from the Old Testament. It's going to keep coming and it's going to keep coming and it's going to be amazing. So let's keep following this guy around and get this bread. It was that good. But Jesus is saying this. He said this in verse 35. He declared, I am the bread of life. It's not what you're actually eating with like your hands. I'm actually the bread of life. I've come down from heaven. I am here, and whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me. You see what Jesus did there with the Isaiah passage, how he flipped it? He said, God says, come to me, all who are thirsty. Come to me, all who are hungry. Come without food. I mean, come without money to buy food. Jesus is saying, come to me. Come to me, and whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus says, it's me. I'm actually the bread from heaven. Then he says this in verse 48. I am the bread of life. Okay, I am the bread of life is the shortest explanation of the gospel. What is the gospel of Jesus? Jesus is the bread of life. He is, the, he is, the, he is what sustains us, what feeds us, what gives us life itself. He is the bread of life. Jesus says, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. That was what I was referring to. And yet they all died. But here is a bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. See the correlation there between eternal life? I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I give for the life of the world. Jesus is like, now he's getting really meta. He's like, I'm about to give you my actual flesh on the cross and die for you. And I'm giving you my body as an act of sacrifice. I've come down from heaven, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to institute this, um, I'm going to institute this, this, uh, this, this ritual with you to where you're going to take bread and you're going to take wine and you're going to remember me. You're going to remember my sacrifice for you, and you're going to remember that I am the bread of life. And you're going to take in bread and you're going to take in wine and remember that I've given my body for you and I poured out my blood for you. And you're going to take this and you're going to remember and it's going to be really real to you. It's going to have actually flavor in your mouth. And you're going to take it into your body and it's going to become one with your body. And all this mystical crazy stuff is going to happen with it. And it will be like that between you and me. So come and take and eat my body. Now if you keep on reading, they freak out. They're like, wait, what? We're not going to eat your body? That's really gross. We don't really do that. It's against the law. You can't really, cannibalization is not like a thing. Like we can't do that. And Jesus said, if you don't eat me from my body... You have no part of me. Obviously, he's talking about communion. And this is what John is saying. John is saying this. That's true. Everything that Jesus said is true. I have taken Jesus' life in. I have seen him. I have touched him. I have heard him. And I say it's all true. I've spent time with him. I followed him. And he is indeed the bread of life. He is the bread of life. He is eternal life. He sustains. He gives, he gives everything. Everything that we need, he gives to us. He is enough. In the darkest times, the lowest times, Jesus is enough. So, so John is testifying the fact that life has appeared and this life is eternal. And I've seen it. I've touched it. I've brought it into my life. And it's real. It's real eternal life. And I testify that this is true as well. That this is true that I have tasted and seen and been with and have heard Jesus. And he's eternal life. And this is not someone, I'm not, 
I, I, I was as far off as you can actually be from Jesus growing up. I was not close to God. And Jesus found me. And I will say that he is eternal life. Now, how do we experience this? How do we experience the, the fulfillment and satisfaction that is the bread of life, Jesus? How do we really experience this? Three, three ways that I think we experience this. So um, I think this is the, um, the, the way that we become like Jesus is experiencing Jesus in these three ways and then living it out. So these three ways, here they are, they're on the screen. We, we experience the bread of life, Jesus, spiritually by fellowship with God. Spiritually by fellowship with God. Practically by fellowship with one another. We're called the body of Christ. And mystically by, mystically by communion. We experience Jesus, the bread of life, spiritually with fellowship with God. Practically by fellowship with one another. And mystically by communion. So let me break these three things down. First, spiritually by fellowship with God. It would not be claiming too much to say that for John, the ultimate goal of believer's existence is fellowship with God. This is where he gets at in verse 3. Look at verse 3. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. So notice what he does there. He hints to the Godhead. He could have just said God. Our fellowship is with God. He doesn't do that. He actually says, our and it would have been perfectly appropriate for John to say, our fellowship is with God. But he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. As he, and he's hinting at the Godhead. What he's saying is that he's saying, there is a fellowship within God himself. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And they exist in perfect fellowship and unity. Perfect oneness. And guess what? We are brought into this as C.S. Lewis calls it, divine dance. We are brought into this fellowship that already exists. We are brought into this, the life of God. Father, Son, Spirit. Perfect, mutual, indwelling relationship with each other. And we are brought into that through Jesus. This is the whole hope of, Paul, of John's writing. What is that we, and you and I would have fellowship with God. That we would live life with God. Now, what is required for fellowship with God? I think this is the same question that the people who were following Jesus asked for when they said, um, can we always get this bread? The answer is the same that Jesus said to them. What is required for fellowship with God? Coming to Jesus. You and I must go to Jesus. He said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. We have to go to Christ. We have to, he doesn't, and he didn't even say how we go. He figures that we'll find our own way to get there. We will find Christ. But go to him. Go to Christ. Now, there's this tension. And the tension is found in John's letter. We'll get into it um, pretty deeply in the coming weeks. The tension of light and dark, of saying that we follow Jesus and really following Jesus. Um, there's this tension. And the tension's also found in what Jesus is saying. And the tension's this. Jesus says, I've come down from heaven, and you must come to me. Both of those are true. The reason why we can go to Jesus is that he has come to us. He has come down from heaven, and he's made love tangible and real. And then now what we are to do is in response to him coming to us, we go to him. And this tension is is um, we have to keep this tension. And if you were to ask me, 
to share with you one story trying to sum up what it looked like that Jesus came to us. It's a story of, and it's told throughout all the Gospels, of Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus loves a good meal. Me, I was joking with a friend of mine recently that Jesus, before he starts, I need to start doing this more. Before Jesus starts teaching, he always asks if everyone's cool. Like, do you have enough to eat? That's what he does. He's like, starts to teach. He's like, oh, let's stop. Are you guys good? You guys need anything to eat? You guys okay? And then he just starts feeding people. And then he starts talking. Like, he does this all the time. And when he's teaching, he's always having a meal. He sits down and he eats with the tax collectors and the sinners. And the religious leaders are like, you're not supposed to eat with tax collectors and sinners. You are a rabbi. You are a religious leader yourself, Jesus. You cannot eat with tax collectors and sinners. And he says to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, by Jesus eating with people that are considered untouchable, he is showing that sinners do not need to do something first to become worthy recipients of God's love. He's not saying, sinners, you have to go and clean up your life and get your life together. And then after you've gotten your life together, now you can be accepted into God's love. That's not what happens. Jesus goes to the lowest social class. He goes to the people that were ostracized from religious circles. And he goes to them and he's having a meal with them, which is the ultimate act of friendship and intimacy in that culture. You become worthy by responding to the call of Jesus. That's it. You become worthy by, go, by, by saying, yes, Jesus, you're calling me. I'll follow you. And that sounds kind of scandalous. Jesus doesn't make moral repentance a precondition of love and acceptance. Rather, Jesus loves and accepts tax collectors and sinners as they are. Why? Because those who are well have no need of, of a physician. It's those who are sick. See, at the simplest level, a physician's job is twofold. To diagnose a problem in our physical bodies, and if at all possible, to cure it. Now, first of all, there's no point in a doctor only keeping company with healthy people. That's absurd and probably against some sort of law. Like, I only see healthy people. Sorry. That's not what doctors do. Doctors must associate with sick people. And why did this good doctor, Jesus, draw near to those sinners? To mend what had been torn in their lives to heal what had been broken in their lives, to soothe what had been wounded in their lives, to cure them and to make them whole. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus is like. And so what Jesus does is is the bread that comes down from heaven goes to sinners. It comes to us in unlikely places, very unlikely places. You might have met God or are in the process of meeting Jesus right now in the most, most unlikely place. So unlikely that you can't even talk about it. You can't even use it as a recipe. Like, I, I, I won't even get into it. Like, how I came to know Jesus is like, I, I, don't, I don't, kind of don't want to talk about it. Because you're like, is that how you do it? Like, no. You don't use drugs and try to start dating someone in the church. You don't, like, combine those two. But somehow, I don't understand why you meet Jesus in the weirdest of places. Because he's after sinners. If you are a sinner in here, he's after you. In the best way possible, like a doctor is after a sick person, to heal you, to diagnose, and to heal. This is what he does. This is what Jesus does. So he's the bread from heaven that comes down. And we can, no matter what we are and what we've done, have fellowship 
and company with God because he's come to us. Now, fellowship with God through, through um, spirituality, through Jesus coming to us, us going to God. This is what uh, Sunday gatherings are about. This is what I would pray your time with God is about either it's in the mornings or noon, at night. How, whenever the time is that you have like intimate fellowship with God. And I hope it's daily. And I hope that you have holy secrets that only you and God know. Like good ones. That you're, you're talking to God in a certain way. He's talking to you in a certain way. And I pray if you're not there that you're cultivating that. That you begin. It might be one minute a day, but you begin, you begin that. But now, here it is. That's beautiful and right. And I like, I, honestly, I live by that. Like, I cannot live um, without that in my own life. Now, as beautiful as that is, that does not stand alone. There is more. We experience the depth of Christ's satisfaction and fulfillment practically by fellowship with one another. Practically. Now, here's what I mean by that. Martin Luther King Jr. had in, in his sermon, um, The Measure of a Man says this. It's not on the screen. Just listen. He says this. It may be true that man cannot live by bread alone, but the mere fact that Jesus added alone means that man cannot live without bread. That's good. Religion must never overlook this. And any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the economic conditions that damn the soul, the social conditions that corrupt men, and the city governments that cripple them, is a dry, dead, do-nothing religion in need of new blood. That's so good. He points out the fact, Jesus said, man cannot live by bread alone, meaning you do need bread. You actually need real life sustenance. You actually need, you, you, you need uh, Christianity to be tangible to us. We need Jesus to be tangible to us, not simply in, in just uh, worship and solitude with God. That's beautiful and right. And John's like, yes, if you are going to be like Jesus, you have to be with Jesus. But you must then become like Jesus in the world. Now, we have the bread of life, but you and I might still need real bread. Does that make sense? Is that metaphor breaking down at all for anyone? Ask your neighbor. They'll, they'll probably tell you. They'll probably, they probably can explain it. We have the bread of life, but we still need real physical bread. How do we get real bread? And the answer is this. We must become like Jesus to one another. When you just say, be warm, be filled, God bless you, and do nothing to warm people and fill people, it means nothing. It should start by praying, but we must move to also a place where we become like Jesus to one another. This is what John hits so hard in his letter. He is saying that if you say you're a Christian and you say you spend time with God, then you must become like Jesus who spent time with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors, people that were um, politically um, corrupt, and you love them and you show them the way of Jesus. If you, if you claim to, to live in him, you must live like him. What, the way that we have confidence when we stand before God is that we were like Jesus in San Francisco. This is what John teaches it's clear if you love God, you will love each other, period. What does, what does the love of God look like? It looks like a friend looking you in the eye and saying, 
I see you, and I see your flaws and your sins, and I love you anyway, and I'm not going anywhere. Like, oh, that, that's what the love of God feels like? Yeah, because that, that, that's it. It's in a marriage when that happens, when you're like, I have every, I have every right to leave you, but I won't. It's in friendships. We've got to have every right to say this and that. But a lo- love covers a multitude of sins. It's when the, the, um, the reality of, of the gospel of Jesus becomes real in another person. This is what we need. We actually, this is the real bread we need. We need the real bread of like giving real bread to people. Of like whenever we find out from whoever in, 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 the, the, in the places that were destroyed by the, the fires that this church does something, like we'll really do something about this. We won't just pray and then Venmo you something. We will really do something. How could we help the church there? How can we help people there? How can we help the church help the people there? Like for real. John says at a certain point, let us not love with, with words and speech, but action and truth. Like John, John like hits you in the stomach because he doesn't let you wiggle away from it. Like we become like Jesus in this world when, when um, people experience us uh, taking on the, the flesh. Of, this is why the church is called the body of Christ, by the way. Did you know that? The church is called the body of Christ. Why? Because we are the body of Christ. How did Christ live in the world? That's how the church is supposed to live in the world. It's not that hard. You don't have to make it that complex. You and I, we're the body of Christ. That's what we are. And so we will act in accordance with that, with all of the, the, the ways that we should in our city. And so this will, this, so spirituality takes on a, a, a very spiritual uh, way, but it also takes on a very practical, physical way. God is love. Love comes from God. Love is seen in Jesus' death for us. To know God is to love him. And then it goes full circle, to love God is to love others. This is what John connects. God is love. Yep, I, I believe that. Love comes from God. Yes. Love is seen through Jesus. To know God is to love God, and to love God is to love others. That is basically um, a five-sentence summary of 1 John. This is what 1 John is about. He's saying that when we, when we have fellowship with God, that will come out in, ex, uh, in expression in our conduct, in practical and visible and complete manifestations of our commitment to Jesus. It will take feet and hands and speech and eyes. It will take on uh, flesh and blood. That's what will happen when, when you and I follow Jesus. It will take on a very tactile, real existence in our bodies. Lastly, not just is it spiritual and practical, but it's also mystical. This might appeal to some of you mystics out there. Um, I am one of them. John was the first mystic, by the way. I don't know if you knew this. John was the very first mystic. I mean, this is the way he opens his letter. It's super mystical. This comes lastly through uh, mystically by communion. There are three things called the body of Christ in the Bible. 
And they are all referred to without qualification, meaning they are equal in their weight. Here, here, here are what's called the body of Christ. First, the historical body of Jesus Christ. His physical, literal body is called the body of Christ. The body of believers is called the body of Christ. And the Eucharist, communion, is called the body of Christ. Those three things. The body of Jesus, the church, and communion. And Protestants and evangelicals always have a hard time with the last one. Like Jesus' body, yes, his body. Jesus', Jesus body, yes, the church. Jesus' body, communion. Ah, uh, is that literally the body of Christ? Well, let me ask you. Is the church literally the body of Christ? You would say, well, yes and no. In some ways, we're incomplete and lacking in, 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 in some major ways. And then in other ways, we are truly physically the body of Christ in San Francisco. The same is true of communion. Is communion literally the body of Christ? No. And yes, it's lacking. It's a cracker and juice, okay? It's a cracker and juice. It's not even real wine. We're in school. You can't bring wine in schools, okay? Just so you know that. That's a 101, right? And so it's juice. It's a cracker and juice. And I like it. Personally, I, was, I noticed this this morning. Communion's broken really big today. I love that. Love it. I'm not going to lie, I hate when I get crumbs. I show up and there's crumbs. I'm like, it's, I, can't, I can't do crumb Jesus. I can't. I need, I need, yeah, last week, Ash and I came for communion. Crumbs at the bottom, there's always at the bottom a giant piece. And we said, this is like the size of Jesus' body. This is really good. This is like, thank you for your body, like the size of your body, Lord. Anyway, so it's, 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 it's there. There's an abundance of Jesus today. Now, is it the literal body of Christ? No, it's cracker and juice. And when we take and eat it, there is some mystical union that happens between us and Christ. And this oneness is tactile. See, Christianity is without a doubt the earthiest of all religions. Unlike most other religions, it doesn't call you out of the physical, out of the body, or out of the world. Rather, it tells you that God has entered the physical world. He became flesh and blood. And he died. His flesh and blood poured out for us, torn apart for us, broken for us. And then he becomes one with our physical bodies and says that one day I will give you a renewed body in a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And then he blesses our physical bodies and he redeems our physical bodies and he makes our physical bodies whole. And this is powerfully and mystically done through communion. And so this is why we do communion every single week. We don't have communion Sunday once a month. I would communion as much as you can. If you are enjoying uh, fellowship, the cup, and bread at dinner, thank God and go, God, we remember you here. You are, you are, you are holy and sacred and set this meal apart. Make this meal different. Make this meal just not just a meal. Be among us as we have. Do that. Every, when you have a meal that has the bread and the cup, do that. And every single Sunday when you come, don't make coming forward for communion novel. You know, the early church um, used to fence communion in pretty tightly. 
where you could not take communion until you basically went through catechism. The early church did this. And then you were not allowed to talk about communion outside of the church. They, 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 they likened it to having, to having sexual intimacy with your spouse. You don't have sexual intimacy with your spouse and then tweet about it. You don't have sexual intimacy with your spouse and go talk to a friend about it. Like there's something so sacred about it that it's between you and your spouse. And they, the early church saw communion like that. Don't talk about this. This is so holy and so beautiful and so intimate. It's between you and Christ and we do this together. Now, um, there's some pros and cons about that, obviously. We don't necessarily do that today. But we do say, don't make this novel. Don't let this become novel. Respect the, the table of communion. Go to it with examination. Go to it in your own heart going, God, examine my heart. Before I come and take the, the bread and the cup, would I remember who I am before you in any ways I've grieved you? If I have any sin harbored in my heart, I confess to you. If there's any way things need to make, be made right before, between me and someone else, I want to make it right before I go here. And do this with humility and do this with gratitude. That's what the Eucharist means, gratitude. Thank you. This is, this is, this is communion. And we get to do this now. We get to have this moment between us and God. This is why we dim lights during second set of music. This is not to get vibey. This is not to make it like really cool and vibey and concerting here at all. It's to make it intimate. It's so that you have this sacred space in this very crazy city that pulls at you in all these directions to clear distraction and be with God and go, God, search me and know me. And Lord, is there ways that I'm not acting in accordance with like what you've called me to be, who you are, who I am in you? All these things, examine me. That's what communion is. And then we, we stand up from communion or kneeling on these carpets or prayer, whatever it is, how we respond. And we leave going, I want to become like Jesus in this world. Open my eyes, God. Help me become like Jesus in this world. Burden my heart for what burdens yours. Let me have feet to my prayers. And we walk out of this, this building, the people of God, the body of Christ in San Francisco. That's our prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, God. Thank you for Eucharist, the communion, where we can come before you and mystically be united to you through communion. The bread, your body, the cup, your blood. You said, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. I want to pray for anyone in this room who has been eating bread that does not satisfy and they know exactly what I mean by that. The things that they've been going after are just not doing it for them. And they hear maybe as clear as they have ever heard right now, you speaking to them saying, come without money and buy bread that really satisfies. Show up with your body. Show up with your life. And eat bread that truly satisfies. And I pray that they would respond to that call by offering you their lives. By saying, Jesus, I confess that I need you, that I'm far from you, that I am un I'm a sinner and I need your grace and I receive your forgiveness and I want to respond physically by coming forward 
in taking communion. And I pray for your church as we step forward and receive communion with those, maybe doing it for the first time, that we'd walk with humility up to the table, with sobriety, meaning we, we have a clear mind, a clear heart, and we ask you to examine us, God. And I pray, God, as you unite us to yourself mystically now through this time of response, that we would become like you in this world. I ask, God, that you would help me to clearly articulate what that means, because some of it is just so complex, but some of it is so simple. Would you help us become like you in San Francisco? And do that, sometimes you're doing that really slowly with us. Some of, that, some of us are on a fast track for that. I don't really understand all that, God. I submit that to you. Make us like you in this city. In Jesus' strong name we pray, amen.